Hello, and welcome to the third episode of the Speech Path Pod. My name's Aiden Osborne, and I'm your host. And again, I can't say thank you enough to those who've tuned in to either of the first two episodes of the podcast. For this third episode, I'm excited to share a perspective that's different than a clinician or researcher, instead focusing on the lived experience of a patient. Today, you'll be hearing from Eric Johnson, an individual who had a laryngectomy approximately 10 months ago. Before we jump into the interview, I want to explain the basics of the laryngectomy procedure so that those who are unfamiliar with this operation can understand how this would impact the individual's ability to communicate. In general terms, a laryngectomy involves the removal of the larynx or voice box. When this is completed, the patient's airway is routed to the front of their neck and a stoma is created. The patient then breathes through the stoma and air no longer travels through the nose or mouth. If the airway was not rerouted in this fashion, individuals with a laryngectomy would not be able to protect their airway while swallowing and would aspirate any kind of oral intake along with their own saliva. So while swallowing occasionally gets easier after a laryngectomy procedure, the patient is still left with limited means of communication. Outside of using either low or high-tech AAC, there are three primary means of oral communication after a laryngectomy. The communication options include an electrolarynx, a TEP or tracheoesophageal voice prosthesis, or least commonly, esophageal speech. Eric, the individual who we'll be hearing from shortly, uses a TEP. Eric's TEP was initially placed as a primary placement, meaning that the TEP was inserted during the original laryngectomy procedure. Another option for insertion includes secondary placement, where the TEP is inserted either in clinic or in the operating room, either months to years after the initial laryngectomy surgery. Now you may be wondering, how exactly does a TEP allow an individual with a laryngectomy to speak? The TEP is a small silicone one-way valve that is inserted into the posterior or back wall of the trachea. TEPs come in a variety of lengths so that they can span the distance between that back wall of the trachea and the front wall of the esophagus. So, to speak, an individual with a laryngectomy with the TEP placed would inhale, occlude or close off their stoma with their thumb or something called an HME, and then they would exhale. And since the stoma would be occluded or closed, air would only have one place to go, and that would be through the one-way valve of the TEP into the esophagus, where it would vibrate portions of the retained pharyngoesophageal segment, thus creating sound that can be shaped into speech. And while that brief primer certainly does not cover all aspects of communication in this fashion, I hope you have a better understanding of how Eric an individual without a voice box could be able to talk for this interview. And with that said, a quick disclaimer, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of the institutions they represent. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. And now let's jump into the interview. Welcome to another episode of the Speech Path Pod. Today, I'm very excited to have a little bit different of a kind of episode rather than talking to a clinician or a researcher. We're actually going to be talking with uh, someone who receives our services, and it's kind of a very particular population that we as speech pathologists work with, um, and that is someone who's had a laryngectomy. As part of my practice the last couple of years, I've gotten involved with a couple of the different Facebook groups for various patient populations, and one of those is for laryngectomy patients. And when I was scrolling through there a couple weeks ago, I saw this really kind of impassioned video from our, our guest, Eric, and reached out and was really happy that he was agreeable to coming on the, the podcast. So, 
Eric, without further ado, if you'd mind introducing yourself. Hey guys, uh, Eric Johnson. I'm from Crofton, Maryland. I had my um, total laryngectomy surgery almost 10 months ago. Um, I had a TEP inserted uh, during the surgery. They thought I was a good candidate for that because of my age and my health. I, I've never had a surgery before. I've never been in the hospital before. So they figured that it was a good idea to go ahead and um, insert the TEP then. I um, had uh, chemo and radiation afterward. I was stage four. So they did um, total laryngectomy and partial thyroidectomy as well. Um, but I wasn't able to speak for about six months. And so I am started speaking again probably mid-October. So I'm about five months uh, speaking now. Um, and uh, people that I run into say, I don't want to make you talk. Um, and I'm like, no, I went six months without talking. I don't mind talking right now. Let's kind of go back then to the beginning. You said you were, were stage four. What was that process like? Did you, is this something that you knew was a possibility for, you know, a year plus? Or did, was this something you had some issues with your voice or with swallowing or something like that? How, what kind of brought you to the doctor initially? It was, um, I'd say, probably coming up on almost uh, two years. I had started to lose my voice, and uh, I knew I noticed some changes, um, scratchy, um, flat, very monotone. The tone was missing, and it would kind of come and go for a while. And then people started asking me about my, my voice, um, what's going on with your voice? And that's when I started really digging in and, you know, hey, this is something beyond my control at this point. Um, started going to different um, ENT doctors. Um, and the results were inconclusive in the beginning. I spent about eight months trying to figure out what was going on before we initially found the, um, uh, the cancer. And so that was really frustrating, just going through different scopes, and I did a CT scan that was inconclusive, nothing was showing up on that. Um, so by the time I found out that it was stage four, scan, stage four cancer in March of 2022, it had been about um, eight or nine months of me trying to figure out exactly what was going on. But I didn't have any issues. It didn't hurt to talk. Um, I didn't have any issues swallowing. Um, it was just my voice. And um, eventually it was the left of vocal cord that was uh, paralyzed and causing just that flat, no variation in tone or anything like that. You know, when it got to that point then, during all of that workup, was it ever thrown out that you might have to have a laryngectomy? Did you have any idea that that could potentially be where this was going? I did. They did um, tell me that this could be um, an option or, um, you know, where I may be going. And of course, you know, you don't want to hear that, but you're losing your voice. You know, it's a possibility. It could be anything. Um, so, yeah, I did open myself up to all possibilities, really. Um, I guess the main thing was I thought I would have more options than just a total laryngectomy. I was thinking, you know, I was ready to go the chemo radiation route to try to fix things at that point or solve some of the issues. I, I really didn't think by the time we found out that my best and almost only option would have been a total laryngectomy. Mm, okay. And you, you kind of touched on it then, but 
you know, it, it's a very big surgery. It's a lot to wrap your mind around. Um, what, what did you think initially when it's presented to you? You know, you're taking their voice box, your voice box out. And while you said, you know, you've had these difficulties with your voice, it's going to be totally, you know, different when the surgery is done. So I'm curious what, what that process was like mentally for you. I mean, I was devastated. I mean, I was devastated. That was going to get something removed from my body. And like I said, I'd never had surgery before. I'd never been in the hospital. And I really hadn't had to uh, encounter anything like that before. And again, I thought I would have different options. Um, but the way I sound now compared to the way I sounded before, um, I needed that uh, relief. I really did need the relief. And, um, you know, you, you dig deep. You really dig deep. And you reach out to um, your support groups. And that's basically what I had to do. And um, tell myself that uh, this, I don't have any other options because chemo and radiation, they say that I will be back in this chair within a year or so. And I didn't want to redo anything or move backwards, so to speak. So, yeah, you pretty much lay it out in front of you and say, even though you don't like these options, this is the best option for you. And speaking of then your support system, did you have, you know, friends, family in the area that you could lean on during this? Or kind of, I'm also curious what, what their reaction to all of this was. I did have friends. Um, and- the area my primarily my family is um back home in south carolina but my partner and i've been up here for about um going on 13 years now um but yeah i had a big support system uh, as far as friends go up here because in the beginning i was against getting this total interjectomy i was not for it at all and i was ready to go with the chemo um radiation route to try to solve it that way and you know my friends and family they're going to stand behind me no matter what decision i made but of course they tried to help me be reasonable about it and you know nobody wants to hear that but you know it was ultimately the um the best route uh, for me to go and yeah they were very supportive of course um throughout the entire process that's great no, that's good to hear because I think, you know, in in my experience working with patients in the past, that can really make or break some of the recovery and some of the things that we're going to talk about later because this, it does change a lot. Um, you know, things eventually get better, but immediately after the surgery, um, it's it's tough. You know, I, I for everyone who's done well, the people who struggled a little bit more, there is a lot that changes with the care. And I always tell people, you do get back to a, a essentially normal life with some of these changes. Um, but those first couple of months can be very, very difficult. So let's talk about then maybe kind of what happened, um, in the hospital generally. So you have the surgery, you wake up and then you did have, like you mentioned, um, the TV placed during the surgery. When did you start using that or what kind of modes of communication did you use primarily at first? At first, I just mouthed words, and I wrote things down and texted. Um, I didn't use my TEP until the first follow-up with my um, speech-language therapist. And I just said my name. I said, my name is Eric, and that was it. Um, 
it was interesting. We all kind of laughed about it. Um, um, but I was glad that I was able to use it and it was working. Um, but like I said, I went through uh, chemo and radiation and it caused a lot of swelling and I just wasn't able to use it uh, for a while because nothing would come out. And plus, I didn't want to use, um, I didn't want to uh, mess with my stoma while it was still healing. Uh, still had stitches and everything. It was sensitive, so I wasn't, I was fine not using it. Um, I was fine just texting, emailing or mouthing words or whatnot, uh, and everybody else was fine with that too. Um, yeah, they didn't really push me to do something I wasn't quite comfortable with, and I'm not going to do something I'm not comfortable with anyway. That's just the way I am. So when you were using just primarily writing, texting, those kind of things, um, especially when you're in the hospital, what what is that like um, if you can't just you know, call for your nurse, or maybe there's a conversation going on, you can only type so fast. What can you maybe talk about how that felt a little bit? I mean, that was definitely frustrating, because especially when I was mouthing my words, um, somebody had to be looking directly at me. And if they turned away, they might as well I just cut off their ears. They weren't listening to me because, of course, I wasn't producing any sound. So that was frustrating, and I know that there's definitely a learning curve with the other party involved, because it's normal. You kind of look around and whatnot when you're having a conversation with somebody. Um, so yeah, that was frustrating, and getting past uh, that and learning how to navigate. Um, yeah, there's a lot of new things that you just have to learn how to navigate and uh, get used to and um, accept as your new way of life. Um, uh, the hospital, uh, it wasn't necessary, not necessarily the um, communication or whatnot with um, everyone. Sometimes it was a lot of people coming at you at once, like the nurses, the doctor, the respiratory therapist, the person coming around taking your blood pressure. And sometimes they all were in there at one time. And you're just kind of, you know, it was overwhelming. It, a lot of it was overwhelming because you're trying to learn a new way of life and you're really thinking like, how am I actually breathing? Like that, I remember that was my first thought when I came out of um, anesthesia after the, third, after the surgery and everything. Like I knew I was breathing, but I'm like, how am I actually breathing? Because I know it's not coming through here. It was just a sensation. Um, I think I really was thinking about that before I went under, before the surgery, like, I'm not caring about talking right now. I'm caring about breathing. How am I going to breathe when I wake up and get out of this? Yeah, certainly. And I think those are, I think you bring up a good point because, you know, in your case, you had some time to kind of learn about the surgery and those kind of things. But there's some people who find out, you know, it's an emergency, it's an airway situation and they go in two days later, one day later, and they wake up and they don't have the answers to any of those questions, you know, and, and they don't necessarily, yeah, have that information. So was that all, were those all things that were kind of covered with you before the surgery then that you felt like you understood to a certain degree? I understood. Um, I had about three weeks um, from when I actually found out uh, when the surgery, three weeks, four weeks, so to speak. It didn't seem like a lot of time. It seemed like I had to like, make a very quick decision. Um, and I understand like sometimes it does happen a lot quicker. Um, but yeah, it was... Uh, I felt like it was enough time. And of course, uh, you don't think of all questions and 
everybody's different, so they can't necessarily tell you this is going to happen to you because it may not. And if they do tell you to watch out for this, you may be waiting for something that may not even happen to you. Um, so I understand that side of it. Um, you can ask as many questions as possible, but it, it may not um, apply to you or your situation. Yeah, it, it does. I mean, it's really interesting because so many different things can happen, do happen. I think you're absolutely right that it's totally up to the individual and kind of their experience with the with the surgery and that surgical process. So then what was it like, you know, learning about kind of this this new way, that, the airway for you, that care? Was that um, difficult, challenging, concerning for you in terms of like stoma care, caring for, um, you know, trying to avoid mucus plugs, those kind of things? It was interesting. I found it interesting to read all about it. I became like, and I wanted to talk about it because I had to eventually tell people that this was what I was going to go through. So I tried to learn as much as I could about it so I could explain it to them and educate. This is, this is what's going to happen. And this is how I'm going to be when I come out on the other side of it. Um, yeah, it was interesting, uh, knowing how the difference between the new me and the old me. And that's how I would explain it to people. And whoever's interested or whoever like listens to my story, they're like, wow, I feel like I just learned so much right now because we kind of like take it for granted um, beforehand um, that you didn't really have to think about cutting off your airway just to talk. And like, that's what I tell them. I'm like, yeah, I'm essentially cutting off my air right now just to be able to talk because you can't breathe and talk at the same time. And they're like, wow, I never thought about that. I was like, yeah, I didn't either. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, all those kind of different things that, like you said, you, you don't think about. So what was the transition like then from the hospital going home? Um, was there any challenges there in those, those first couple of weeks once you left the hospital? Not really. Maybe eating, um, I graduated fairly quickly with the liquid and the soft food and all that. Um, that was probably the taking a shower. I can't take a shower the same way I used to. That was frustrating. Like learning all the tiny little things that um, you just didn't think about and nobody could really tell you about because there's way too many and you just have to kind of navigate all the different little changes that are going to take place not being able to blow my nose or not being able to whistle anymore. Tiny little things that I didn't even think to ask or nobody thought to tell you or anything like that. So, I mean, the learning curve would be the most frustrating part of it. Yeah. And I think that's interesting to, to know, because I think, you know, on, on our side, when we're giving some of this information before the surgery, you know, we try and give you as much information as we can. But like you said, there are so many is highly variable. And even if we go through all these different things, you know, maybe one applies to you, one applies to somebody else. And you have sometimes maybe these bigger kind of existential questions about what, what all is going on with this, that maybe you're not really concerned about blowing your nose when you're going into this surgery. And it's just when you're living your day-to-day -day life, when you're done, when those things really kind of come back up and are a little bit more, more relevant. Yeah, it's, um, I think before the surgery, you're thinking exactly bigger picture. You, you're not thinking about day to day, every day until you're actually living it on the other side. Um, yeah, 
I mean, the transition was not that bad. I'm fairly independent. Um, I didn't like it when people were like, hey, can we do this? What do you need? I'll whatever, you know, I'm like, just let me do it. I'm fine. Just let me do it. Because I really wanted to, I guess afterward, once I got back home, I wanted to feel normal, as normal as I could, because being a week in the hospital was very abnormal. Um, like I said, I'd never been in the hospital before, and I did not like that experience at all. So I just wanted to feel as normal as I could and do as much for myself as I could once I got home. That's kind of where I wanted to go next with the conversation is, I think it's really interesting you talked about kind of old me, the new me. And I think one of the biggest changes potentially is the voice and maybe how that sounds. And, you know, it was changing leading up to the time that you had this surgery. But how do you feel about the way that your voice sounds now with the TEP in terms of kind of how you identified with the way you sounded before versus, you know, creating that identity now? I'm still getting used to it and still accepting that this is my voice from now on. Um, it's it's changing as well. Um, when I first started um, uh, using it and talking in front of people back in October um, to now, they say that I even sound better than I did a couple of months ago. So it is still evolving and I'm still, you know, accepting that. Um, and it's interesting that a lot of people, and I've heard that they think I sound a lot like I did before I started losing my voice years ago. And, you know, I mean, that's great. Uh, I certainly don't think that because I'm hearing it from a totally different perspective. Um, but I do sound better than I thought I would before the surgery. I thought I was going to sound very uh, computerized. You know, the commercials, the scare tactics to try to get you to stop smoking and they're talking and they they sound awful. So I thought it sound like that. Um, Did you ever have to use an electrolarynx? They gave me one, but I couldn't get the hang of it because I was so swollen through here. I couldn't get anything to come through. But yeah, the way my voice sounded um, before I had the surgery... I sound better now than I did then. It, it had turned into this um, very high-pitched, squeaky, just annoying. Like, I didn't even like talking anymore because I could see the look on people's faces and they kept asking me, oh my God, uh, you've got laryngitis or um, whatnot. I'm like, uh, yeah, that's not quite it. Don't worry, yeah. Don't worry about. It. I'm looking into this. This is not kind of under control. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm taking care of it. Yeah, that's that's interesting because I I think that's got to be when you have that process of coming up to you know you have the voice changing. Um, I think maybe then it can be a little bit easier potentially on the back end now when this is your new voice, especially if it is a little bit easier to communicate. And that's one of the, why I asked about the electrolarynx, because a lot of patients who start with the electrolarynx does have that computerized robotic sound, but you know, with time it can be fairly easy to use. But then when they switch from an electrolarynx to a TEP, usually someone's, you know, partner or family member or someone will say, oh, they got their sense of humor back, or they sound like they did 
you know, the way they talk is the same as they did before. Because when you're using the electrolarynx, there's some really obvious barriers to kind of that natural intonation of speech and things like that. They can get a little hard to perceive with the, the buzzing. But then you get the TEP back and you do get some of that kind of naturalness as well. I think it's interesting that you brought that up. Yeah, I just couldn't get it to work. And um, it was very computerized because, I mean, it's a computer making noise. And yeah, I just couldn't get it to work at all. And I was ready to use the TEP from what everybody told me and what I had um, seen online or whatnot. Uh, yeah, I was looking forward to that. I didn't want to try the electrolarynx or anything. And what was the process like then of when it was able, you were finally able to, to speak through the TEP? What was the reaction of your like your partner, your friends, when you had you were able to communicate again after not being able to communicate verbally for, you know, six months? It's got to be a, a big change just in the way that you can communicate about, you know, really kind of innocuous things too, important things for life, but then also those small things that you can just, you know, say now. Well, my partner, like I had been trying... Um... And we would be testing it out like one, like every afternoon we would kind of practice a little bit. So that just kind of came built up day after day after day. Um, but then uh, we had a friend come over last week and um, she had never heard me talk. And um, she was like very excited and just elated that... Um, she was actually able to hear me talk about the experience and hear my thoughts about it and everything because last time I saw her I was just mouthing words um so yeah there's been a lot of excitement around it um me being able to communicate and yeah just in the past I'd say yeah like four months things have just kind of started balancing out so to speak um, because chemo and radiation just kind of threw everything for a loop. It just changes everything. And I really didn't realize um, how, how much it was actually going to affect me. Um, uh, yeah. It was so interesting because I thought um, things were just going to be so smooth because I wasn't having any side effects for weeks. And then it finally hit me and it put me out for a while. Um, but yeah, once I was able to get over that and started using the TEP, things started balancing out because there for a while, like I said, um, you're just kind of discovering new things about your new life, things that you didn't really think about and realizing, hey, well, that's going to be different because I can't do that anymore. And then maybe a week later, you discover something else that is going to be different because, you know, you can't really do that the same way. So it was a good long um, time of just discovering new things. What have been some of kind of the most challenging things since the surgery kind of throughout this this process, really wherever you want to go with that related to the surgery or this kind of trans transition back towards this like new normal, new you? What's been the most difficult? Probably this whole thing, talking, not being able to talk for so long. Um, I had the conversation today that... When I was out in public and I would have to write things down and um, people, they would react differently. Sometimes they would write things down and pass it back to me. And I'm, I'm just like, I can't hear you. I'm not deaf. I just can't speak. That happened a lot, a lot. And um, 
it kind of made me conscious of how I react to things as well, or people who are, um, you know, not able to speak or whatnot. Um, because I noticed a lot of people would stop, start mouthing, uh, like over enunciating, talking back to me, and like they thought I was deaf or something because I couldn't speak. So that was interesting. A lot of people's reactions, um, different reactions and whatnot. So I'd say that was probably the most challenging, just not being able to speak and uh, the isolation it causes. Um, you can't really be part of conversations. Um, you're kind of looked at differently. Uh, you can't pick up the phone and call your best friend or whatnot. Um, you know, texting and email are fine, but they only go so far. Uh, sometimes you do need that interaction. Um, so it was kind of isolating there for a while. And sometimes, sometimes it was beneficial. You know, I could be like, <laughs> somebody knock on my door and be like, right, right. <laughs> Sorry. No. <laughs> so yeah, I'd say just not being able to talk was probably the most difficult. And then, you know, my shower routine, I don't like that. I don't like having to bend backwards to wash and not be able to like have the water splash all over me so what do you are you still working now did you stop working after this or you know for a period of time what what does that look like i i am trying to get back into building up my business i am i'm in real estate i'm a realtor and i had been building up my business up until my surgery so I had business built up that kind of took me through, I'd say, July or August. I mean, I was in my hospital bed still um, negotiating deals on two of my listings. And like my mom, she came up for the surgery. My mom and my partner, like, put the laptop down. And I was like, hey, I just got to do these things. I just got to do a few things. I've got my phone out. I'm texting. So I was working up until um, I just couldn't anymore. Um, because like I said, you know, texting and email go only so far. Um, so I had my current clients that kind of took me through September, I mean, um, July, August, but not being able to talk, I couldn't really pick up new clients. So, um, yeah, I'm jumping back into it, uh, for the past couple of months or so, since I've been able to talk again, just jumping back into it. Okay. How's that been going? Any negative kind of interactions or has it been mostly okay um i wouldn't say negative uh maybe surprising um doing open houses and people walking in and i kind of i am reminded that i tend to just kind of jump into things without like faking it all the way through because once i get to the open house and the doors open and people are coming in i'm like god what did i do like i just put myself in the situation where i'm gonna have to be talking to people I had just started talking again and I felt comfortable at the time when I was actually in the situation is when I was like, did I really think this all the way through? But it wasn't a negative um, situation or anything. It, it was more probably um, me being self-conscious. Yeah. And I think that's usually um, what I hear from um, some different kind of individuals in the past is that once people kind of get their questions out of, you know, why do you sound like that? Or why are you pressing on your neck or those kind of things? Um, usually it's pretty normal. I mean, they kind of, you, what about out in public? Has there been any, you know, strange questions, awkward moments that way, or people just 
stay to themselves. Mm, I wouldn't say any strange questions or anything. Um, somebody did. Somebody did say, you know, I won't make you talk or anything. It sounds like you're having some problems there. And so that was just honest. I said, you know, I had a total laryngectomy about eight months ago, and I wasn't able to talk for six months, so I don't mind talking. Um, and I'm fairly open and honest with anybody if they want to ask any questions or whatnot. Um, I do recognize uh, when I am talking, you can kind of see the looks, the reactions on people's faces sometimes, um, the nonverbal reactions, so to speak. Um, and I'm getting to a point where I'm not letting that bother me so much. I think it's always going to come with, you know, working with a lot of different patients that we work with, with voice disorders or communication issues. I think one of the big hurdles can be that kind of turning to the public eye and in some of those interactions. So I think your strategy is the best, just not, not to worry about it. Cause I think, yeah, no matter what, no matter if they know, they don't know. Um, it, it's it, most people, I don't think mean anything. I mean, this is my voice. It is what it is. I can't do anything about it. Um, it shouldn't bother you because it's not doing any harm to you or anything. And I really, a lot of people have told me that I'm probably the only one that has an issue with it. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I'm the only one that's bothered by it. I mean, you know, if it's involving you, though, I think that makes makes sense. So just a, a couple more questions for you, Eric. I think um, one thing that I'm interested in, too, is, you know, I was introduced to you via the, the Facebook group. Um, how has the, the Facebook group seen other laryngectomies? Um, has that been helpful to you? Do you know anyone kind of in your local geographic area or is most of the connection with other laryngectomy patients via some of the online groups? I do not know anybody in person, but I am connected um, to somebody who is in the group who um, had my same speech therapist. He gave me his contact because he is um, a couple of months ahead of me. He had his uh, laryngectomy, uh, yeah, like two months before me, but he did not have a TEP put in. He uses an electrolarynx. And he actually lives in D.C., probably like 30 minutes away. So we um, text back and forth and we're like, we're going to eventually meet up. But you know how it is. You know, sometimes it happens. Sometimes it takes a while for that to happen. But, um, yeah, I was actually telling somebody the other day, it's like, I don't know anybody else like me other than the group. But, yeah, the group is helpful. Um, nobody told me about the group. I just, like, on a whim decided to do a search uh, and I found two groups. And, um, actually, one of the admins lives in Maryland as well. Um, but, yeah, it was... Um, yeah, on a whim, I did a search, I found him, joined him. And I think it's, I mean, it's helpful just to have uh, a sounding board like that and see other people's experiences. Um, because like I said, I consider myself lucky. I see some of those posts, I'm like, wow, I'm so lucky I'm not going through that or didn't have those issues. Yeah, no, I think the that's for me, it's been really interesting, sometimes heartbreaking to see some of those posts of, what some of these people are going through, some of the difficulties getting supplies and things like that, because that's another big aspect of, you know, 
laryngectomy care is just getting the various supplies that you need, whether it be the TEP, the base plates, HMEs, all those kinds of things. And so it is hard to see um, when when people are, are struggling to just get kind of some of those basic you know necessities. What would you say to kind of other laryngectomy patients or someone who is about to have a laryngectomy done? Any kind of advice, words of wisdom? I would say find to educate yourself. Find out as much as you can about the procedure and what could, what couldn't, what may, what may not happen afterwards. Um, and be patient because it's, I mean, your time frame is going to be your time frame. It's not anybody else's to have, it's yours. And you just have to ride through it and do the best you can. Um, realize that the situation is what it is. You can't really do anything about it. And it's better than the alternative. And then kind of on the other end, what what would you say maybe to um, kind of other healthcare professionals or SLPs or something, you know, thinking in that vein that you think would be useful or, or helpful? Maybe something that could have been done a little bit differently that would have made your experience better. Like you said, maybe when you're in the room and there's four people all trying to talk to you at the same time, anything of that nature. And maybe even to another way to frame it would be kind of what, what would you want them to understand about your experience um, or kind of this transition that you think could be useful to just understand? Because again, most of the people who are helping laryngectomy patients do not have a laryngectomy. And so that is, yeah, and you're pointing at me and you're, you're waving your finger because I think that's the, there's a lot of things that we get from these kind of conversations, but we don't have that lived experience. And so I think that lived experience is so important and we can gain a lot of information. So if there's anything you'd like to share. I mean, I think that's it. Um, you guys typically have not experienced it and you're not having to, you didn't just find out that you're going to have to have it done. Um, so I guess maybe, uh, trying to understand the mentality or the mindset that the patient is in at that time because it's i mean it, it felt traumatic to me really and i just was getting all this information from all different directions and the one thing on my mind was i'm getting all this removed and my life is going to change forever and even though i was paying attention a lot of a lot of it was just kind of noise and it wasn't getting in because I got that one big picture on my mind. Um, so I don't know the way around that other than uh, being aware that that may be what your patient is going through. Um, a lot of this extra stuff is not getting in because there's some trauma involved with the information that you just gave them yesterday. I think that's 100% true. And that's what we, I kind of came to a similar conclusion where no matter how many times that we talked about things, you know, before the surgery, whatever the timeline was, always wanting to go over those things when people were actually in the hospital after the surgery and then afterwards, because it is, it's, it's, you know, if, um, you know, I haven't had any kind of similar medical experience. So it's, it's hard to relate. And I think the best we can do is just to be as empathetic as we can share the information and try and help along the way as much as possible. Really, that's all you can do. I mean, and uh, share some of the experiences of your other patients, because that's really all you know, what somebody's sharing with you and their experiences, which like I've said, I mean, it, they're all different. 
Well, any other kind of final thoughts you have, Eric? Anything you want to share about, you know, being a laryngectomy, about the um, experience that weren't able to talk about? Um, nothing that's coming to mind, really. I think we covered a lot. Um, so I and helpful and can be helpful to your um, colleagues and your future patients. Well, I, I really appreciate your time and your openness to, to share this experience with, with all of us. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks. And that was the third episode of the Speech Path Pod. Thanks again to Eric Johnson and thanks to you all for listening. If you like this episode, please rate us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share with your colleagues.